On this episode of Progressive Palaver, the group finishes their conversation on Pink Floyd's The Wall. Hi and welcome to Progressive Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands album by album. I'm Joe Beauclair and on this episode of Progressive Palaver, I'm joined by my very good friends Tom Corcoran, Paul Zotter, and Ken Gregory as we finally finish out our discussion of Pink Floyd's The Wall. very assertive and definitive intro we will finish the wall <laughs> we will finish the wall tonight i have so declared <laughs> <laughs> we are we are now on episode three <laughs> of the wall disc two whether that be a single cd or sides three and four of the vinyl however that may be but we are you know we've We've, we're on to the second disc. We're going to finish this out. And this is, you know, I, I love this. The way this is split up. And all through this, this extra sort of bonus time that we've had to think about the wall. And, and as I think about how this album is tracked out, and, and I know we're not supposed to cross over into the live show and everything else, but I can't help but wonder at certain times if if Roger didn't construct this specifically with the stage show in mind. And if, in fact, he did that, I'm even more impressed hmm. um, than I was before because... You know, much like when you're doing any other sort of stage production and there's an intermission, I mean, the the two discs here, and again, I don't care whether you've got vinyl and you've got sides one and two or if you've got CDs, but, but the two separate discs are very discreet. They cover different aspects of of this whole story that we're telling. And it's it's very brilliant the way that it's split up. And, and, and even some of the, what I normally call connective tissue in, in progressive concept albums, you know, it, it seems very fortuitous that these things were there. And again, we'll, we'll get there when we get to the live shows, but it, they, they seem to be very strategically placed in order to facilitate certain stage movements, which is, I, I just, if, so again, if Roger not only constructed this beautiful, wonderful studio album this way, but he, he did it simultaneously thinking about how it was going to translate into the stage, I am beyond impressed. Well, I did watch a YouTube video over the last week that was an interview with Roger Waters that indicated that very, very late in the final mixing and mastering that there was some shifting around of the songs based on uh, Bob Ezrin's feelings of, you know, the flow uh, of the songs and the story. 
I mean, Joe, I mean, this, he is such an artistic vision, right? That he has. I, I really don't think that he was too far off in his, in, in his work. I, I'd be willing to say that while, you know, I, I don't know that it was a full George Lucas where he had all nine episodes planned out from the start. Like, <laughs> I think he had pretty good seeds of what, what he was thinking about. And, and, and part of the reason why I say that, and, and you know, the, the very first song that we get here is a song that, that you, Paul, have been lambasting since before we started our Pink Floyd segment. Despite the fact that you did a spectacular tutorial video on Nashville tuning while playing this song. Um, and that is of course, awesome. Hey, you, and, and for me, I, you know, Hey, you is one of those songs that I always knew it, it in, in a lot of ways. I've, Oh, I personally have always viewed it as a parallel really to the formula. That's, that's, that's executed with perfection in comfortably numb in terms of the, the, the Roger David sort of back and forth dynamic. Now, uh, you know, and again, I never understood what set this apart again, Paul, until your video and, and the whole Nashville tuning thing just really was eye opening to me. Um, but, and of course we all knew, know and knew um, growing up that Hey, you was not in the movie. And so there was always this sort of question in our mind. Well, is it, is it really part of the wall? Is it not? Is it, you know, whatever. And, and, Paul, I, I understand and appreciate your feelings with this. But for me, I have, as an adult, when I th have thought about this, I've always sort of amused myself with, hey, you is almost like, you know, because you're, you're switching discs and it's almost like previously on the wall, <laughs> you know, and it just kind of, it just kind of encapsulates this whole yes. idea of, of this isolation. And it's like, all right, now that you're caught up, we can get back into the story sort of thing. And and so I'm I'm amused by that. But so so I have done in the last 3 weeks, I have done a complete 180 on <laughs> Hey You. And it and it is the exact same principle, Joe, that that you just you just set out. And I think I mentioned this on the on the last time or at, at least the last time, probably many other times. For me, listening to The Wall on vinyl has changed the way I perceive everything about this album. And exactly that point, Joe, there's always, for whatever reason, there's, it, it, it's divided up so nicely. When it's time to switch the record from album one to album two, and I put this on, the first couple times I did it, I skipped right over Hey You just like I always used to. <laughs> <laughs> it just required a little bit more effort. Wow. On the <laughs> it, it just a little, little bit more eye, eye hand coordination, right? Mm. But, but I don't know what what it did. I, I guess I just figured, well, you know, it's the palaver. I'm going to have to listen to the whole entire album at least one time. And when I put it on, it struck me exactly the what you just said. I was like, because what what always would get me about this is that. It changes the, the 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 point of view of this, like the, the part about it was only fantasy, the wall was too high as you can see, no matter how he tried, he could not break free, right? Everything in the wall is is a first person uh, story. It is it is told from the characters in the story. And all of a sudden we've jumped out as a narrator. And I never liked that. I always thought this is bullshit. But 
when I experienced it on vinyl, I thought the same thing. And I even looked it up on, on, uh, you know, the, the Googles on the, uh, the interwebs. And it, it's known as, and I'm going to say this, I wish it, I wish it was something easy to pronounce. Maybe one of you smart people know how to pronounce it. It's referred to as an entract or uh, if it's French, it's maybe an intro, but oh. it's basically an intermezzo. It is basically the overture before the second act. Okay. And I, and I'm, so I connected to exactly what you said. That is exactly how I, and ever since then, I'm like loving the song <laughs> and I'm, I'm like, you know, and then, and then I learned the high string tuning thing with David Gilmore. And I'm just like, I I'm now I'm playing the song every day. Like, so I have completely come about. Well, awesome. Paul, this is really interesting because you brought up this earlier today and it's something I found out as, as well. Um, according to a, a, a 1979 BBC interview, Bob Ezrin called up Roger Waters, like you had uh, brought up, and he told him that, you know, side three didn't work. And they moved Hey You from um, further back to to up, you know, the, fir the first song on, on that side. And so I think that's interesting. That sort of ties in with, with Joe's initial point. Did roger waters have in mind the live show and it brings up your point paul with um not being in first person because it wasn't really meant to be there now it makes sense if you really want to go through you know it does it does sort of work in the um in in, in the wall world you know first on side three but it's interesting that it wasn't there originally and furthermore if any of you have an early pressing of the wall you will see that the mm. songs and the, you know, the lyrics are in a different order and it actually when bob ezra brought that up the album had already been pressed or at least the um the uh, graphics for the album had had had, had been pressed really? so early versions will have hey you later in it um so when people were getting it at first they were like wait a minute this isn't the song and you know there was a little bit of um complication there but mm. uh, it, it's interesting more so that if you feel that it doesn't work there it originally wasn't really supposed to be there so i find that i find that interesting i'm loving this word paul <laughs> untracked yeah uh, french pronunciation but if you prefer italian intermezzo and spanish Intermedial, um, <laughs> but the Germans, oh my God, Schweichenspiel, <laughs> or Schweichenakt. <laughs> um, uh. So, originally, on tracks resulted from stage curtains being closed for a set or costume change to fill time, as to not halt the dramatic action to make a transition from the mood of one act to the next. So, yes. I can imagine this occurring in between side one and side two, Paul. Nice. Um, so I, I, I love it. I think there's a project that we have. Maybe, maybe we can get, we can have our listeners help us out here. Um, there has to be somebody listening to us that has an original vinyl copy of the wall when it was first, uh, first released. So if, if there, if that is and true, this is you. 
<laughs> yeah, it could be Ken Fuller. It could be Bodkin. It could be Bodkin. Um, but I'd love to see two things. Love to to figure to know what the order was of the songs uh, in the in the lyrical uh, outlay, and then the other thing is if the band is credited as being the band in the original gatefold, or if it's like the reissue where there's no mention of the band at all. So maybe someone will help us out there. We also need one friend who's actually been to the show. That would be awesome. Would I have one awesome. in mind. Yeah, if if Fuller wasn't there, I have somebody else in mind. So I mean, well, I'm I'm glad, Paul, that you uh, you came around and you now embrace Hey You and the and the role that it plays in the narrative. And you know, if in fact, you know, Bob Ezrin made this call, that's a stellar piece of production right there, right? Mm-hmm. Indeed. Have we talked about how ridiculous the production is in this album? I mean, what year is this? 1979, 1980? What, yeah. what year is this? 1979? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I believe so. I mean, this yes. really yeah. stands up. Even today. Those guitars, the sounds, the, the key... I mean, there is... I, I'm Personally, I don't think there is anything dated outside of there actually being guitars on the track that make maybe date it to something. Um, I don't think that this sounds dated at all. And this is every time, huh, I mean, you know, the, the guitar solo is, is basically one note, you know, it's just, he's <laughs> just like, Wah! and he holds it out while the guitars are with that, with that harmonic overtone. I mean, it's epic and it sounds just so good. Well, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the solo in Hey You is the, the only time, well, uh, up until this point, that the theme is played, the sort of um, another brick in the wall theme is played that's not in another brick in the wall, one, two, or three. They really incorporate that, um, that riff into the solo of Hey You. So uh, I found that very interesting that they they sort of crept in the 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 overall theme yeah. of the wall yeah into that 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 smaller section and 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 it comes it starts to come back again during the um the second album which, yeah which thematically is you know when the wall is built and he's behind the wall so it fits thematically with the uh, the idea I never realized that before, Tom. That's a great call out. You're right. How about a shout out to animals with the line, hey, you, would you help me to carry the stone? Oh, yes. And thank you, Ken, for bringing that up. Now, when we talked in in animals and we had that one video of the gentleman who put a lot of emphasis on that particular phrase, the stone, carrying the stone and everything else, it is... it. It is kind of moving that it shows up here, and I think the fact that it is it, it, it's it's reused here in in terms of that perhaps maybe lends some credit to that original argument with regards to animals. I don't know, um, but but well, clearly, I'm glad you're enjoying it. Yeah, I mean, clearly, <laughs> it's 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 a symbolism that speaks to Roger. Yeah, I'm. I'm. Well, I'm personally concerned about the, the the symbolism of the worm or the worms 
Um, if there was one thing that I found more disconcerting than anything else of, of all the horrific images in this album, it's why worms and why do they have to, you know, be presented in this way? Mm. The worms ate into his brain and then, and then we get to judge worm later on. Yeah. And, and, you know, yeah, I, I think, you know, I don't know if it was the same interview, Tom, that we, that we're referencing, but, I did hear, um, apparently, Roger, Roger stating that the, in the early versions of The Wall, uh, the concept of worms were much more present. And as they refined the ideas, they, were, they, you know, they fell more to the backdrop. Um, but you know, he was using worms as a, uh, as a metaphor for decay. That, yes. you know, isolate yourself, uh, you're bound to experience some sort of decay and the decay of society, blah, 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 all that. Yeah. So the wall could have even been darker. <laughs> and, and more <laughs> so, uh, of course, you know, in the narrative now, since as Paul, you mentioned, we are behind the wall. Um, you know, this is this is where we start to sort of maybe bring in some of the the Sid Barrett motifs, since we are obligated to mention Sid Barrett. Well in done, Joe. Every Good episode, for first thirty minutes. <laughs> Thank you. So I know I know we had it in the pre-show, but it was important to work it into the regular episode as well. <laughs> so so I have I have checked off my 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 Pink Floyd palaver box um, with regards to that, but but well, yeah, I mean. In truth, though, in this context, it's probably more appropriate to be invoking Sid Barrett than it has been, you know, since Piper at the Gates of Dawn. Well, and and here's the interesting thing, right? Because so much of disc one and the building of the wall seems very tied to Roger and Roger's experiences, and then disc two, when you're behind the wall, you know, because Roger never went completely boffo. Um, and I apologize if that's a, a terrible word to, to say. Um, it, is it? I, who knows? I don't even know what I don't even know what it means. But that doesn't that doesn't delineate. We'll allow it. Clever from any other. <laughs> but 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 the point is, Roger never had an episode to this extreme, whereas. By all you know, documented accounts, yeah. Sid Sid had you know very a very difficult time in the latter part of his life, and so it's funny that the 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 disc one that describes the building of the wall is is told within the context of what I think are mostly Roger's experiences, whereas a lot of maybe the the overall. Uh, flavor of this too when you're when you're behind the wall seems to reflect maybe more of what happened to Sid um, because again Roger never actually wound up there. Now, yeah. from a from a narrative point of view, um, I do have some issues with with the second disc and and there are just a couple of moments that I'm just like, huh, what? But. You know, show me a show me a progressive concept album that doesn't have those sort of non sequitur moments, and I'll buy you dinner. So I'm not going to lose too much sleep over that. But so maybe we can move on to: Is there anybody out there? So here's the: How long can we talk about this this two minute song? Well, I do have a question. 
because it's one of those things that you know you you take so much of this for granted that you don't really think about it and i was i was you know writing my notes and everything else and and unfortunately i was not in a position where i could see um how this was tracking so the question that i have and and maybe it's a stupid question and i apologize the acoustic guitar is that part of is there anybody out there or part of nobody home because it doesn't that's is there anybody out there okay so so the, and that's that's what I that's how I thought it tracked out. So for me, you know, there there are a couple of things that sort of stuck out to me from this. And again, this is one of those connective tissue pieces, which presumably, um, you know, is utilized to some degree. And we'll get there in the live show. Um, but the the things that stuck out to me were the squealing guitar, which was very reminiscent, obviously, of Echoes, very very cool. Mm-hmm. And then when it goes into that acoustic section which and and again it's it's such a a fantastic way to to set this up because presumably at this point you know we close side one with goodbye cruel world so we're going to assume that you know our our protagonist if we're going to call him that has overdosed or or whatever the case may be and now we're sort of in the internal part of the journey if you will. And so you've got this presumably huge void that this person is lost in. Is there anybody there? You have all this space. But then there's this very beautiful and soothing acoustic guitar that comes in and they've got sort of the orchestration that comes in sort of at the end with that. And it's it's almost peaceful to a certain degree, which it just, you know, they're, and it's such a, a dichotomy between the two parts. That's what I. That's what I. I react to here. Do Do any of you feel that? I mean, the music is brilliant in this section, and when I say this section, I'm going to say this side, uh, the the third side. But it seems like some of the like story wise, it sort of meanders a little bit. Um, I think that we we're in his head, and we it doesn't if. Let me put it to you this way. If somebody was asking me what I thought of, you know, if I would tell them the story of the wall, I would have distinct things to say about um, story points in side one, side two. Side three would sort of be, a okay, the wall was built. He's complete solace and he's in his own space <laughs> and he's just, he is he is sort of rotting in his own isolation and he does that through a lot of this now i'm not, this isn't necessarily a criticism because i think it works everything works well but um if we were to sort of critique it i would say that you know maybe story wise there isn't a lot that that pushes you forward into the next part of this i don't know if that's what maybe you were saying joe or maybe i'm just completely off no yeah i I think i think that's exactly um um what i'm saying here and you know it's one of those it it it's kind of funny in that this section you know side three ish of the lamb lies down on broadway has a very similar 
a flaw, if that's the right word, where, you know, the first two sides are very concise, get you, you know, along a path, and you kind of know where you end up, but that side three gets kind of lost a little bit, um, yeah. I think. So So I, I agree with you, um, you know, and when we... Yeah, honestly, for me, um, you know, like I said... It, I, I understand why is there anybody out there is there. Um, I absolutely love Nobody Home because it's Pink Floyd does a torch song, which is kind of unexpected, but very, very cool. Um, but it's, you know, it it's, it's almost redundant at this point. Like we've already sort of covered that ground and Vera and bring the boys back home. I, I, I just, they I don't get it, honestly. It's so for me, tracks you know two through five are superfluous. There's your twenty-five cent word for the day, Paul. I just wanted to check: Are we still talking about the wall? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can't believe what I'm hearing. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, I mean, it's and and I. I say that from a a critical point of view. I never skip any of this. I sing yeah. all of it. I love it. But if you're if you're asking me from a narrative point of view, but I don't get it. Huh. Yeah. Well, yeah, that, I, that was my point as well. It's just from from a narrative point of view. Well, I will agree with that to the to the extent of of Vera. I have no idea. I mean, I'm basically just making it up myself to 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 decide to decide what it is. But the thing the th from someone who spent decades listening to quote unquote side three without Hey, you <laughs> right. I mean, basically side three is a, a large suite of, of sort of stream of consciousness, which is I categorize as, is there anybody out there? Right. Because the end, very end of bringing the boys back home ends with the sort of reprise of, is there anybody out there? Right. And so, and, and and maybe that's the key, Paul. Maybe that is exactly the key, right? It's this it's this stream of consciousness that occurs again, the internal journey that gets us from goodbye, cruel world to comfortably numb. It it, it yeah. describes that that period, whatever that is, and, and and maybe that's why it seems to me from from a narrative point of view so disjointed, because you can't you can't accurately predict what's going to happen there yeah i think you know i think i just uh so nobody home i'm with you is was literally one of my favorite songs on this whole album um you know and to me th this is this is the piece like that that moment which i think we all we all can picture in the movie right where they bust into the door and there's pink sitting in the chair and, you know, and that's really sort of reenacting that idea that, you know, they had to go and bust, bust into the room and get Sid, take him to the show. Are um, you jumping to comfortably numb and skipping the best part of the side? No, 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 no. I'm talking about, I'm talking about what, like what it's building up to, right? Like, so, so that, that moment is, you know, is, tells me that this whole entire section is basically about Sid, right? Sitting in his hotel room, in his stupor, kind of slipping away from from reality. Um, 
you know, nobody home is exactly like it is. I mean, it's life on the road, you know, and I know I, part of that interview I heard, you know, Roger, uh, Roger says that, you know, the only person he ever knew who had Go Hills boots was, was um, Sid. And, you know, it's basically about Sid on the road and being on, on his own and, and the isolation that you feel. Uh, to me, Vera is just, it doesn't really matter who Vera is. It's, it's just kind of like a reminiscing. Does anybody remember when we used to, life used to be different? And um, does anybody else feel the way I do? And bring the boys back home, I think, is is more like just, you know, how do we get back to where, how do we get back to when, when we were doing this because we loved it and we weren't in this, like, ridiculous show and there weren't all these demands. So I, I, I don't think, I don't actually think there's a lot there it, conceptually, which is why the just the incredible lyrics and the songs that are in this small little, this whole, the small little side three are just like, to me, just fucking killer. So Ken, you had mentioned the best part of this side. What is the best part of this side? Clearly nobody home. It just takes the cake. It's beautiful. The melodies have stayed with me forever. Mm. Um, it works. You mentioned that this entire album was possibly written for the stage. And this is just really wonderful. You can check out the YouTubes with Aussie Floyd. Uh, the backing vocalist comes in and uh, uh, it's, just, it's just wonderful. Um, Do we know, so, did, did Richard play the piano on here? Or was it one of these other hired gun type guys? Very deep cut question. I, I do not know, but I'm sticking with the theme right here. We can, we can circle back to that, but. Um, sorry, Ken. my God, I, I, I well, I, I, I'm just in my, in my heaven here. And Paul really didn't do this justice. I mean, you tried Paul, but please, <laughs> I've got a little black book with my poems in. I've got a bag with a toothbrush and a comb in when I'm a good dog. They sometimes throw me a bone in. I, I get chills every time I hear that. And whatever the context is, whatever the cover is, it's just really wonderful. Like I said, check out Aussie Floyd. Um, it works on stage with the, the television and all that. I got elastic bands keeping my shoes on directly from Sid, apparently. I got this Swollen Hand Blues. I've got 13 channels of shit on the TV to choose from. Who did not love that when they were 13 mm. years old? Or in our case, maybe even 10 or 11. I've got Second Sight. Uh, yeah, yeah, I've got Electric Light, and I've got Second Sight and Amazing Powers of Observation. I just love the way he's sarcastically talking about how enlightened musicians are in, in that. You know what I mean? Mm. <laughs> I've got electric light. I've got second sight and amazing powers of observation. And that is how I know when I try to get through on the telephone to you, there'll be nobody home. Very consistent with the rest of the album and things we've already heard. And so if uh, if that line Ken is is sort of tongue in cheek sarcastic, what about the the line that that uh, ends this or is near the end? I've got a strong urge to fly, but I've got nowhere to fly to. That to me feels very genuine, though, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, truly. Which, yeah, he can travel the world. He 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 can be anywhere. He can have all these things. 
but he really doesn't. He lost the urge. He doesn't want anything. He's not growing. It's very dead inside. And and I think it's it's maybe that switch right from the yeah. from from the the satire to the genuine that makes that that line so so powerful. Yeah, agreed. The delivery is really sinister and sarcastic too. The way he's kind of talking it and singing it, and and um and then that just explosive "Ooh, babe!" when I pick up the phone at the end is just um. Gut yeah, wrenching. Paul. Gut yeah, what, what was what was the gut wrenching uh, cut from the from the first disc that you really liked in the in the previous episode? It was the um, uh, "Don't Leave Me Now." Okay, so we got a little bit of that same yeah. emotive yeah. performance right here. Just one line, "Ooh, babe." Yeah, exactly. And and like bookmark this because I will be referencing this a lot when we talk about the final cut sweet okay and and and, and clearly you know there is just uh, after this we get to comfortably numb and that's absolutely and, iconic but for me personally when i hear this this side three i'm dying to hear nobody's home yeah this this i'm i'm with you 100 ken and and just i mean this is sort of silly but the you know we're talking about the sort of the the cynical, the serious, the sad, the gut-wrenching. And in the midst of like the most gut-wrenching part of this song, in the background you hear, surprise, 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 Gomer Pyle <laughs> on, on the TV. It's just perfectly placed. It's perfectly placed. So we've, we've now taken the journey. We land essentially incomfortably numb. I had... I had posed the question to the group uh, weeks ago whether or not Comfortably Numb was the definitive Pink Floyd song in terms of the formula, the sounds. Um, it was argued against that Comfortably Numb, if it has any significant drawbacks, it is a distinct lack of Richard Wrightness to it. Um, but, but I mean, this is, this is one of the all time classics, right? This is, this is your stairway to heaven. This is your hotel, California. This is a song that will endure forever. Right. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, and, and uh, honestly, I've got, I, I don't even know what to say about it other than what I just said. I mean, it, it is what it is and it's sort of, it's self-evident at this point. So I'm not going to. I'm personally not going to spend a lot of time gabbing about it because what am I going to add? Well, well, production value for yeah. one, you know, Tom, I mean, the blend of acoustic guitar, electric guitar and bass is just epic. I would, I would agree with you, Joe, if you are still sticking to this, that comfortably numb would be the sort of quintessential Pink Floyd song. Uh, I was thinking a lot of that. Uh, I was thinking a lot about that since you brought it up. Um, just a, a fun little tidbit about the song. Comfortably numb was inspired by waters, in, uh, waters injected with a muscle relaxant to combat the effects of hepatitis during the In the Flesh tour while in Philadelphia. Oh wow! Uh, awesome. Wow! So um, that was sort of a um, inspiration for that, but. Um, yeah, I mean, there, there's little things in here. I guess this is 
in in the story, the, the doctor gives him gives Pink injection to sort of get him up and running so he can perform. Um, and uh, some of the in, some of the interviews that I uh, listened to with Roger Waters was talking about his real life experience just being exhausted uh, playing shows, and I think whether or not it was one of the the round of big shows that he had problems with, or it was just you know the the, the grueling tour ca- calendar. He he really. Uh, there were times where he was sick and he was, he was really, really sick and he knew he still had to, to perform. There were people that had paid a lot of money for tickets, contracts and um, big responsibilities. And he couldn't not get on stage. And I think that was also some of the inspiration behind this is that with, in the story, Pink just can't can't perform because he's so out of it. And the, the doctor, they meet with the doctor, and the doctor injects him with something. <laughs> so I think <laughs> Cylon <I> think, time. <laughs> uh, well, all right. So <laughs> you got it. You got it in just in time, Tom. Well done. All right. All right. Comfortably Numb is a brilliant example of Gilmore and Waters working together. My understanding is that the chorus is from Gilmore, but Waters tacked that extra little bit on the end, something consistent with other tracks on other albums. And I just love they're going in the key of D, back and forth between the D and the A. Really beautiful here. And then they take it down a whole step. Oh, didn't see that coming. Oh, that's great. Oh, man. I repeat all that, but this whole bit with, yeah, these extra chords at the end, totally waters trying to milk the chorus and get that extra line in there. It just makes it so beautiful. And also the, the contrast between the major, the bright, the optimistic, and the cynical horror show that waters adds to it. It's it's it's, it's a absolutely a wonderful example. I won't say quintessential. I'm probably going to go with "Run Like Hell." Um, Interesting. At least at least the live version for the quintessential back and forth. Okay, nice. Yeah, the only thing that I, I want to add to that is that you know Gilmore. This was what one of the songs Gilmore wrote when he first discovered the high string tuning concept. And when you get those that switch from the B minor section to that D major section, you just get this lush like yeah. that, and you know it's it's it sounds so magical when those when those guitars just come in, and um, it's beautiful. So the thing about comfortably numb is it's so easy to take this song for granted, which is why I love what Ken was just talking about because you know these chord progressions which we've known for decades. Like, they're really incredible. And it doesn't matter that Roger Waters has already written 10 songs with those same chords in them. It's, they're, they're, the, the effect that you get in this song is, is unbelievable. But I swear, even now, every time I listen to this song, it's like I hear something a little different. I hear how much better it is. I think I've mentioned before, every time I hear this song, I am awestruck at how good David Gilmore's voice sounds. Um, Ken, those bends that you're talking about in the guitar solos, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't matter how many times I've heard them, 
I am in awe about of the way he executes that that solo. It's unbelievable. And then um, there there's sort of this legend about the um, the art the the disagreement that Roger and David had about how to handle the verses in in Comfortably Numb. One of them wanted one, one of them wanted the other, and supposedly there was a compromise that neither one of them can really remember, and they just assume that the song is better for it. Um, but no, no, uh, the, 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 the lush Michael Kamen orchestration is louder in some parts and quieter in other parts. Yeah, and, and ultimately, so, Waters was for the orchestration, and Gilmore was a bit against it because he wanted the ballsy-ass guitar to shine. Yeah, so I was listening. It's just ironic that I was listening to this YouTube video on like music production where they talked about the importance of the second verse and the second verse being treated differently after the, the first verse and the chorus. And one of the freaking cool things that I'm not even sure that, that it, you know, I, I even noticed for years is that in the, in the opening and the first verse of Comfortably Numb, there are all these delayed sort of guitar... Um, doo, almost like birds, like doo, doo, you know, going going by you over top of all of of that orchestration, and it's this really kind of ethereal and psychedelic effect. But after the the chorus in the second verse, it's much more laid back, and it's just it's more of just the orchestration and the high strung guitar stringing through. You get the little pinprick sound, mm -hmm. yeah, and the, and then the screaming voices. It differentiates the second verse so much from the first that you don't you don't even realize it. You know, you just kind of take it for granted, and then you're nice. boom, you're right back, you're right back to it. So that it is, you know, you, how often do we listen to like the most popular song of a band, and we're kind of like, ah, this song, right? Ah, whatever. Like it's easy to take the song for granted. The popularity of this song is completely deserved. And it, it's still, to me, one of the greatest of all times. And, and all that stuff that you were talking about, Paul, and, and it's true throughout this entire album, right? We've been talking for many, many episodes at this point of you know, Pink Floyd practicing sound design. Mm. And, and at this point, they are spot on. They know exactly how to use it. And it's all these little moments that, that, that keep kind of coming up in here that are, they're, they're done perfectly. And they, you know, you may not even recognize or actively think about them, but taken as a whole in context, they really sort of push this whole work, you know, up over the top. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just for a second, juxtapose like the biggest hit from, I think well, this is the biggest hit from The Wall. I mean, maybe maybe history argues with me, but the biggest hit from The Wall, and it is really one of the greatest songs on the album and, and one of the, the greatest songs of this band. And juxtapose that with like Misunderstanding from, from Duke, which <laughs> every time that song comes on, you want to just throw up, you know? <laughs> I don't know if you want to throw no. up, but but oh. but but the <laughs> unfair comparison. The point is made. <laughs> well, I'm I'm glad that we had so much to say about a song that is is so iconic. That is wonderful. Is dare I say 
uh, seminal. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's almost Thank like you. side three. Side three is a is a single for for comfortably numb with the greatest bonus tracks ever recorded that actually precede the single. It's kind of funny. So comfortably numb is the end of side three. Yes. Oh, that's a freaking killer way to uh, to end it. And again, beautifully tracked. Because um, if you mm. have to stop and walk across the living room or whatever to flip over, uh, you know, your disc, this is this is the perfect time to do it. Right. You can change your shorts along the way. There you go. <laughs> I see an opening for my argument here. I hate to say it, but there is a salvage.com in this album because there are only so many rock songs. And if you think about it, we could have had, you know, another brick in the wall with its various parts. Mother, Young Lust, um, another brick in the wall, part three. Kind of Hey You into Comfortably Numb into Run Like Hell, and that would have been a rock album. So, so Ken, rather than call that a salvage.com, why don't I, I think the perhaps the more appropriate parallel is the the North American single disc version of Marbles. <laughs> oh, yes. Right. Indeed. Oh, here we go. <laughs> right. it, it would be an entirely different experience, um, and I would have to buy both. But I, I see totally where you're going there. That would be cool. Do we have playlists? Can we put that together as a playlist? And I think we could. Yeah, that would be <laughs> that would be kind of fun. We haven't done a playlist in a long time. So can we can we flip the disc over and move on to side four then? And, Let's do it. And and okay. hit the show must go on. So hey, who ordered the Beach Boys? Anyone? Mm. <laughs> I'll say. Um, Especially when you flip the record, I've always I've always loved the the contrast that this song provides. Um, but especially after the experience of side three and culminating in comfortably numb, when you flip the record and you start with this, it's it's somewhat of a relief. Like if you just went from this right into the into flesh and and everything, it really is. Uh, I, I think I think you would be in a very you know dark and dreary place. There's something very cool about this that segues it all together. Yeah, I, I and and you know, there once we get into side four, right? We're going to get into uh, you've got you've got two flavors. You've got sort of like over the top show tunes, and then you've got that you know the the dark part of the rock album, right? And uh, you know, it, it's it's fascinating the way they sort of leverage the two of them against each other um and and that's what we see here and you know i think this is uh it's an interesting sort of throwback vocally for david right because this evokes for me some of david's early vocal work it's not you know it's it's not necessarily what we just heard in, in Comfortably Numb, and it—I don't know—it just—it it just struck me as kind of mm. very cool, um, the way that works. The opening, like the phrase, "There must be some mistake." Like, there, yeah. there's just this—it's like there must be some mistake. I didn't mean to let them take away my soul. Am I too old? Is it too late? I mean, you can almost imagine Roger Waters penning those lyrics when he's walking off the stage in Montreal, right? Like. 
it, it's it's uh it's it's I love it. It it basically almost sums up the entire the entire feeling of this album, right? Like, didn't mean to let them take away my soul. Am I too old? Is it too late? Oh, the show must go on. Oh, wait, there's there's more. Yeah. There's more. Where has the feeling gone, right? Oh, my gosh. How did I almost forget that? Will I remember this song? Like, so, this is so fucking great. Like, to your point, Tom, like, he's on stage. He just needs to get through the show because he's got to get through the show, right? You know, and, and and this dichotomy, and you know, here again, we've talked about it. We it's come up in in interviews that we have watched for all of this. David Gilmore wants nothing more than to be a rock god. He wants to be on stage in front of you know fifty thousand people every night with the huge stage and the whole not. He eats that shit up, and Roger doesn't. You know, right. and and so, and it's fascinating the way that David can use Roger's loathing of that lifestyle to feed that lifestyle, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh. So, I mean, this is this is a really, I, I think this is a really sharp, you know, one minute and thirty six seconds, honestly, and and I love the the back half of this album. I just think it's brilliant. Mm. Now, and of course, we're going to get into a lot of the maybe the misconceptions about Roger that we talked about. I think in in the last episode, but I'm curious what your thoughts are on this in the flesh reprise that we have here. I mean, musically, it's exactly the same. And, uh, lyrically, it's it's a lot different. Um, but the only thing that kind of gets me is the, the big bombastic ending with mirroring exactly in the flesh question mark minus the, the, the dive bomber. I, there's something about that that kind of rubs me wrong the more I listen to it. Um, but I do generally like, you know, the, the sharper feel about this one, um, I, you know, compared to the original. It's just, it, it seems so... It just seems odd that it's such a straight, you know, copy and paste type thing. Fair enough to say. Yeah. Well, it's the show, right? This is the, uh, you know, the, you know, we talked about the, um, the opening where he said, um, is there something or tell me is something eluding you, sunshine? Is this not what you expected to see? If you want to find out what's behind these cold eyes, you'll just have to claw your way through this disguise. And we've basically just spent three album sides clawing through through that disguise figuring out you know where he is nice. and now he's at the next show he's completely lost control and and uh and and then you know uh i've got some bad news for you sunshine pink isn't well he's stayed back at the hotel and they've sent us along as a surrogate band we're gonna find out where you fans really stand yeah. fucking fucking genius and so, so I, I mean, it's always been to me. It's always just been like the coolest thing that they that they kind of turn it into this live 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 show. Yeah, and, and it, it, it is it it is very sort of moving in that regard. And, and again, when you talk about if if you just listen to the words and don't think about the context and what's being told, you know, this is where you know, we start to use some of the questionable terms, terms that were questionable back in 1979, much less today. 
And I think, you know, when, when, you know, when we were younger and, and, you know, the, the casual listener would say, Oh, Roger Waters hates this group and that group and the other group. It's like, they totally missed exactly what he was trying to say. And, and the, the harsh spotlight he was actually shining on that sort of behavior. Right. Um, yeah. All they heard were the words coming out of Roger Waters mouth and assuming that it was at face value. Um, no Phil Collins pun intended, but I mean, that's, and, and that's, that's so not the case. And, and it, it's so obviously not the case. Mm. Joe, was if I didn't know any better, I'd say you're turning into a Cylon <laughs> right now. Was this album talked about in your elementary school? Because I feel that this was one of the few albums that permeated the culture so much. Like, I, I remember, like, Joe, you're, you're talking about people misinterpreting Roger Waters and 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 this hit the culture so wide and and obviously with another brick in the wall you know got into the heads of, of little kids and, and I, I think this was probably you know one of the most shit talking albums in, in in the culture probably a lot of you know misunderstood conversations happened about about this album I, I'm sure that they probably did. I can I, I can tell you that in Doyle Elementary in Doylestown, Pennsylvania, we did not. Our music teacher was Beatles obsessed, so we only dealt with the Beatles in music class. <laughs> Joe, you know Doyle, what? Doyle Elementary, you were talking about about we, we were uh, not. This? We were talking about the Beatles only, only the Beatles. Oh, gotcha. Okay. <laughs> no, but I mean, at that age, whether it was like at the bus stop or on the bus or just you know here and there. Because I just I just remember like Can, trying to figure this out as a kid. Yeah, I, I mean, I was talking about ELO if I was talking about anything, Ken. So you know, keep in mind when we were younger, you were and well, you still are light years ahead of me in terms of of music uh, taste and and acumen. So yeah, I'm I'm not going to be able to enter that conversation. <laughs> I oh. you know it it took me so long. <laughs> I mean, I. I my awareness of the wall and the songs on the wall by the time I meandered all the way down to side four and this part and, you know, watching it in the movie, like it, it I must've been like in high school by then. So yeah. I, yeah, I, yeah. 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 Can, I mean, and, and you know, the, the, the strong language aside and given what Roger is trying to do here, I, I think we have to give him credit because his delivery is balls out fantastic. Mm-hmm. 100%. Yeah. I mean, I still enjoy singing along to this. Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, and, and, you know, to be clear, when I was in high school, you know, Illegal Alien didn't really offend me. So, um, you know, um, I'm, I'm just kidding. This, this, was, this is beyond the pale, which is what really I think what makes it so, so provocative. The, I mean, we, we was talked anyone about, really talking about this in elementary school? I mean, I'm surprised. Well, we could have been, uh, but I don't. Wow. Think. I mean, I, I'm just kind of going to say, if you were having conversations about the wall in elementary school, that is um, a very progressive um, group of people that we're talking about. No, this. I, 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 I just mean like, like, like the, the very most basic, ridiculous conversations, like Pink Floyd's on pot. And and right, there's okay. a baby under the ice, 
and it's all about the worms or some, you know, it's, it, it's just all the gross, ridiculous, you know. There's a butt. That, <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So you're, you're talking about a conversation that you'd have at a bus stop as opposed to one with your English teacher. Okay, that, that makes sense. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I, I'm just saying this was so provocative for, for I, it, we would have been. 10, 9, 10, and 11 when this came out or whatever. And, and we would have, it, it would have persisted for, for years through our teens. And I just remember, you know, the initial hearing about this and, and it was all like edgy and it was exactly what Roger wanted. It was just using, you know, shock advertising to get everybody's attention. Well, and, and that still holds true today. I made mention before, again, when I saw Roger in 2017 on the Us and Them tour, I was amazed at how, to, the, to this day, Roger just loves to get right up in your face and say, look at this. Does it make yep. you uncomfortable? Good, look at yep. it. <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. Yep. Look, at, look at these eyebrows being shaved off. Yeah. I mean, and it was mainstream, right? Like, you know, Marillion Brave, you couldn't have a conversation, you know, with anyone. I couldn't have a conversation about Brave with anyone outside of this group, you know, but as a 10 year old, you could have a conversation with someone at your bus stop about the wall because everyone knew what it was, even if you if you weren't all the way knee deep into all of the yeah, I didn't. All, all the banter. Here, here's something about the in the flesh lyrics that have that that um has stuck with me. So a couple weeks ago, um, we talked about the albums of 1980. And in that um, bonus episode, we talked about uh, Peter Gabriel's three. And the last song on that is Biko. And, you know, we talked a little bit about that song and, and I was um, enamored with that song from Peter Gabriel's play live. And when I saw the first time I saw the so tour, I was absolutely thrilled that he ended his concert like the regular part of his show with Biko because that's what I was expecting after listening to to plays live and I wanted to to there's a very there's a very final you know and very very specific part about that song that just makes you think okay we're done here when when he did that song and he gets to the end where everybody is going uh uh oh mm -hmm. and they're mm -hmm. singing along like he stood up on in center stage and he would lift his hands up and he would put his hands up both of them you know almost almost in the victory sign right but just straight up and he would put them up and it only took once or twice and the entire 18 plus thousand people at the spectrum in Philadelphia were throwing their hands up in unison with him singing that mm -hmm. and and as I and I was doing it too, but as I was doing it, it struck me at how eerie it was <laughs> that we were kind of singing about a guy who died. We were singing about the about sort of revolutionary thoughts about that, and and we were sing and and we were all kind of in unison together. And so when I hear Roger Waters say something like. You know, after all, when you get to one of these big stadium shows, it, it really is nothing more than a fascist rally. It actually kind of rang true to me because it's like, wow, that that artist up there has a lot of influence over these people. And it may be a very small thing that he's, you know, putting his hands up and everyone's doing the same motion, but it's kind of freaking me out. And 
and I've always connected that feeling to to this song about how when people are enamored by an, an artist that they love, they they definitely lose their judgment around you know what they're doing or or what's happening a little bit, and lose lose their own power, and uh, and I th- and I think it's this part of the of the concept and the and the story uh plays with the idea that the artist can lose control of of the crowd as well I'm brilliant padwan i wish roger was here to pat you on the back <laughs> wonderful <laughs> and, and, and that's great and sorry <laughs> um um and and to boot we have just a huge huge sid reference with pink isn't feeling well yeah so. yeah yeah <laughs> And 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 honestly, Paul. So then, that whole motif that you're talking about, like what happens when the whole thing goes off the rails? You wind up the machine, and the machine goes crazy. You get run like hell. And you oh, know, yes. you know, again, from from a, a narrative point of view, you almost have to sort of stop and and f- trace how you actually got here. Because at first blush, you know, run like hell musically and thematically is like, what the fuck? How do we end up in some sort of a riot situation? Um, but it, it, you know, when you stop and think about it, you, you can figure out how you did get here. Yes. The, the, the last thing I want to say, which is just kind of funny, is that I, I've listened to this so long for so many years that I, I, the last couple of weeks I noticed how many parts of the record that I, and, and, and I'm going to say them a lot as we get through this side, but you, you just, I don't even know what's going on, but I just instinctively do it. Like at the end of show must go on. I'm like, the show must go on. And then I go, Whoo! because that's the first like tone that you hear before the crowd comes in, you know, and the <laughs> echoing God, these chords are so amazing. It's so wonderful, so simple, so Gilmore. But really, the genius behind this, I feel, it's it's the pre-verse and the verses. The whole run, run, run thing. Because when they go down to that low chord and then and then they resolve it again it, it gives it all this power and then they launch into the verses you'd better make your face up in your favorite disguise with your button down lips and your roller blind eyes with your empty smile and your hungry heart this is amazing so they're just doing half steps there it, it, it's like a an e minor to an f back to an e minor but at this point, oh my God, that C rings so beautifully. And how do they get out of it? Little slide down to that's uh, a you know it's a B power chord, kind of implying it could be a B major, could be a B minor. It's just wonderful. And then of course, and I don't know why I think about this, but a lot of this stuff separated the big dogs from the little dogs in the eighties because you know, it's like, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a D major song when you've got all this 
Yeah, 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 yeah. But fuck all that. We're going to E minor. We're doing all this dark stuff. And it's really great. And I think of like, you need a really good producer sometimes to do that or pressure or whatever it is. I don't know. And and I think of like Mutt Lang and, and, and Def Leppard forcing them to chop up different parts of the song. Yeah, you got this happy thing over here. That's great. But don't spend the whole song doing that because people are going to get bored. Then you have to put something else cool in there. And it just seems to be, you know, something that happened in music during the 80s primarily that I really love, where, where, where people used simple chords and ideas, but chopped them up in ways that gave you so much momentum and power. Ken, this is presumably why you are sort of putting this forward as the a candidate for the definitive Pink Floyd song, right? Because of, of this sort of, um, you know, variation on, on the common theme that we've seen before and some of these characteristics, if you will, of the, the David and Roger um, interplay musically, right? Is that what you're... Yeah, yeah. I'm talking about some kind of like a, a aggressive butcher block composition where you get the one guy's ideas, get the other ideas, and they hack them all together and comes out strong at the end and 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 then if you see it live and gilmore starts a line and then waters does the next line it's just really amazing i mean you know we talk about the one guy wrote the verse and the other guy wrote the chorus but when you see them bouncing back and forth in the same verse this is like i don't know what you call it a distilled or concentrated yeah version of who they are that's that's why i nominated this and, 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 you know, it, it's, it does, one of the other things that I always find interesting is, you know, David has, I, I, I tend to sort of lapse into the, the, the thought that David has the soothing voice, but when David needs to get gravelly and dirty, vocally speaking, he'll do it. And, mm. and this is, this is one of those, uh, this is one of those times. I mean, this song is just and I mean this in the best way possible. This song is nasty. This song is dark. This song is mean. This song is edgy. And I just think it's, you know, it, it, but it's it's not it's not that way in 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 a manner such that it's it, it's totally disconcerting. It it fits in perfectly. And again, this is this is another one of the the big hits from from this album that we we've all known. And it's it you know it's. It's almost amazing that these songs from this album are as big as they are. I'm, I'm just in awe because, again, the band asked themselves after Dark Side of the Moon, what do we do? We've, we've reached our goal. What do we do? And, man, did they find things to do. <laughs> <laughs> but if, I, if I'm not mistaken, isn't this an encore? Maybe. Uh, yes. Uh, on on, on okay. Gilmer's Floyd, it's, it's usually an encore song. <clears throat> Brilliant, brilliant. Yeah, Tom, you were saying. I was interested to see if you guys were going to talk at all about um, the place in the song as far as the story-wise, because I found, I found it very interesting. Uh, I just recently was listening to an interview with Roger Waters, and he went through every song story-wise, and I was shocked to hear that this song doesn't really fit the story 
at all. This is just a song that Pink plays in the performance. And that's the only story glue. That, that's, that's the only story element that Run Like Hell has, is that this is the song that Pink plays in, in his performance. And the, the lyrics are sort of um, ubiquitous, but they, they don't really push the whole um, Pink's story forward. And um, that being said, I mean, it, 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 this will always be one of my favorite Pink Floyd songs. <laughs> uh, but it's, um, it's interesting that I could just see how this maybe came about. I mean, they, they just they, they wrote this incredible song together, and they were like, this has to be on the wall. And they maybe just didn't know where to put it. And they're like, okay, well, this will be the song that Pink's playing in this in this in this piece because it maybe doesn't fit the, the the lyrics don't don't fit the story, but it's still it's still great. I mean, um, yeah, it, it is, and, and that's interesting. I had not necessarily heard that. It does make a lot of sense, and and it does help sort of um, carry you from you know the the. Um, appearance of new pink, if you will, into ultimately waiting for the worms because I, you know, I, it it may have been jarring, and we could always, you know, set up a playlist to do this right. If you went right from in the flesh into waiting for the worms, you almost need that run like hell to carry you sort of through there. It, it's it's almost like very energetic connective tissue, right? Yeah. Oh, you'd lose your your rock audience. You'd discredit the album. I mean, you'd you'd go from one theatrical piece to another theatrical piece. No one would listen to side four. Right, and and you know, once we get into, I mean, once you get into at, at the end of of Run Like Hell, you're full on theater at that point. And, yeah, and, um, I, they do a great job in in the movie in the flesh as the you know. The marching band and the choir and the huge audience. I'm sure it was a blast to film that and terrifying with the Nazi images. And then this is where the hoodlums actually deliver the violence. Right. So that would be the, the real terrifying significance. Yeah. And kind of going back to, to you know, Joe's opening uh, discussion to point tonight around, you know, did did Roger have the stage performance in his mind? I mean, we, he claims that he, you know, did George Lucas it to the extent of he wanted this to be a, an album, a show and a movie. And within the lyrics of this, you know, he's, he's staying true to the, to the imagery that he's creating the imagery around the hammers, the concept of, you know, send you back to mother in a cardboard box. Like he's, he's bringing out these, these um these things um so yeah i think for all of these reasons it it you know it, it it's a it's an incredible piece of side four an epic part of of the uh the album and when we go into the theater section waiting for the worm stop um and the trial and maybe i have to say up front i absolutely adore this section and I, I had put it on the on our group text, you know, a few weeks ago as I was sort of cheating ahead listening to this, you know, what, what people's thoughts were on this. Because you could 
describe this, and and I hope I'm not being blasphemous, but I, I, I you could describe this as, you know, almost campy, right? It's so over the top. It's like, um, it, it's almost like, you know, the master of the house section in, in Les Mis, right? It's, it's that, it's, it's that hot, you know, far over the top, but it's, and it, and you're on this, you know, rock album, this, this double length, you know, concept rock masterpiece. You just got done getting your face shredded off with run like hell, but it's, it's really brilliant. Yeah. You know, and, 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 and honestly, I think waiting for the worms and, and Paul, you had made the comment, you know, back on Saucerful that this is, you know, Corporal Clegg re redux. Um, it, it, it sort of transitions you from run like hell with this sort of sinister intent into all of that. But it starts mm. to bring in those theatrical elements and, and add them in to where the point where, you know, when you get that stop, Boom. Cool. Yeah. And then you move into the trial. It it doesn't seem jarring at all. It's like, oh, this is this makes perfect sense. Yeah, Putting totally. Putting yourself on trial is a, is a, is a definite um, great way to, to close this out because of the injustices that um, have happened prior uh, and really trying to get break down the wall after um, the, the first half building building it up i mean a trial story-wise is such a great place to go it, it is very risky i mean talking about what, what joe was saying i mean this is not rock here um you know there are sort of rock elements but you know you're you have a story to tell and you have to tell it in a certain way and you know luckily they have so many great pieces Prior to this, I'm not saying that this isn't a great piece, but it is risky. I mean, when you're talking about a rock audience doing um, a theatrical song like this, um, you, you sort of risk alienating some people. But story-wise, it's brilliant, and it's a must, and they do a really great job of it. And if you're going to, I mean, if you're going to do something like this, they, they did it the best way possible. The, and um, it was—it's just a, a great way to, to 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 finish this on a on a story level yeah, for sure. It's just one thing I, I want to say at the time because you're right. It's like such a—it's such a challenge. But when you consider the history, like, and and I think I may have said mentioned something to this. I may have been in a pre-show that I I I feel that less so now. Like after after listening. To like Uma Guma and Adam Hart Mother with all the, well, especially Adam Hart Mother with the whole first side of that that album, like, like the trial is nothing, you know. As far as <laughs> you know, it's like it's just a couple minutes of of theatrics that you know, you know, this is this is uh, many years of of it building up. So so you're right. From I think from a general like the year this is, you put this into the mainstream. This is really risky. For Pink Floyd, this is just you know part of their overall repertoire coming out to, you know it's it's you know what I think it's it's greatest actualization mostly thanks to Bob Ezrin I'm gonna say. 
Sure, and, and and this is at the end of the album. I mean, if something like this, it wouldn't fit story wise. But um, you know, if something like this came out in the beginning of the album, yeah, that would be a, a bit more of, of of a risk. But no, you're right. I mean, c- compared to Amagama, I mean, this is this is nothing. So, a uh, question though about the trial, if we are indeed talking about that now, I was always under the impression that Roger Waters did all the voices. Uh, on the trial is that true i I was gonna ask if we knew who sang what (laughs) (laughs) because i i I personally don't know um and and i had to think because i i I think if i just listen to it it sounds like roger doing all the voices which is funny because previously you know mother was voiced by david and now mother is voiced by by roger I love the way they introduce the characters here. I think it's it's brilliant that each one of them, you know, their their story is summed up so succinctly in just those yeah. few lines that they get. And it's it's I mean, from a lyric point of view, it's it's really a masterpiece in in how he pun intended, he hits the nail right on the head with each one of those. Yeah, it's it's absolutely masterful um, the way he does it, and and switching up, you know, those voices just enough, and and I yeah. just I I couldn't help but but you know remember back to the joy that was the Battle of Epping Forest, and it's like yeah. Peter is singing so many words and so many characters, and you have no idea what the fuck is going on. And and Roger's able in you know like four minutes or, or five thirteen to just boom deliver everything. You've got like yeah. six different characters. You know exactly who's doing what. You know the relationship. Bam, you're in, you're out, and it's brilliant. Yes, Joe. There's a lot going on in Epping Forest, but you're loving every fucking second. <laughs> <laughs> right on time. Now I do I. For me, and, and you know, I get hung up on weird aspects of, of narrative. And so I want to take a quick step back, though, um, and talk about stop. Because mm. the, the few lines in stop are important to me from a, a narrative point of view. Because as I started to think about this, it's like, what's the point of all of this, right? Why are we, why are we doing all of this? And, and what's, the, what's the risk? What's the payoff? What's what's the big deal of tearing down the wall, right? Who, what, what, why am I invested in this? And, you know, because again, the the first disc is all about the backstory and all of these terrible things that happen and, and why you insulate yourself and then what happens after the fact. But, but for me, stop is, is sort of the, the fulcrum here. Stop. I want to go home take off this uniform and leave the show. And I'm waiting in this cell because I have to know, have I been guilty all this time? And Tom, you had, you had very surreptitiously made reference to this. And, and for, like I said, for me, this is the important part, the character pink and, and, and let's make the extension. Roger Waters puts himself on trial and says, I need to be tried for this. I need to know what the answer is. And in a lot of ways, you know, the, the reason why I think that that plays an important part here is, you know, by all accounts, 
and and say what you want to about Roger and whether he's a grumpy old bastard or anything else, the events that happened in Montreal Stadium seemed to shake Roger. Roger was like, what have I done? And it's almost like, you know, Roger had to look at himself and say, is this what I want? Is this what I wanted to become? To me, that's why I think this whole thing is is genius. To your point about the voices, I just love singing along with this. I just love all the characters and it's so and like, fun, right? <laughs> yeah, I'll just whether the album's on or not, and you know, and we're working from home all the time, and and like if we're in a Skype meeting or a Zoom meeting or a Microsoft Teams meeting, and like we're waiting, someone can't fucking figure out the the mute button or whatever. I'll just be sitting there to myself, and I'll be like. Call the schoolmaster. <laughs> I just, it just lately, it's just permeated every every ounce of what I do. It's it's so much fun. I'm actually going against the grain here. Uh oh, Ken. Oh my Ken gosh, does not no, like the Ken, trial. don't do it. You know what I want? You know what I need when I'm nearing this portion of the wall? Just play mate again. Just throw in some <laughs> shit so I can. <laughs> Please, please, can you give me a little bit of breathing room here? Can you just give me my soul back? You know, Jesus, that was bleak. <laughs> <laughs> I need some redemption, and, and this just isn't delivering it. I mean, I get it, Paul. It's a blast. But, man, you had all this time and all this energy. Could you put a little more positivity into it just slightly? So I mean, how do you feel? Outside the wall doesn't doesn't deliver you to a nice, happy, safe place, Ken. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Ken, he's the judge. The judge is saying the way he's treated his exquisite wife and mother fills mm -hmm. him with the urge to defecate, and the people in the stands are cheering the judge on. They're going, "Yeah, get him!" And it's all in his head. I mean, he's cheering his own judge to, I mean, it, it's, 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 just it's kind of like a bad Seinfeld finale. <laughs> <laughs> is, is, and, and let's talk about the urge to defecate is not a normal line in a rock song. So I'm going no. to go out on a limb here and say that we had Jerry Scarf's visualization of Worm already in our head or, or at yes. least roger had some idea of, of how he wanted worm to be portrayed uh, because uh, you you can't you can't come up with that line um accidentally or in a right. vacuum you, you can't and and i can't help uh, you know this whole time and, and again for those of you who are listening at home Tom has, through the, the joys of modern technology, been portraying the inner gatefold of the Wall album behind him this whole time. And so I'm constantly looking over his shoulder at Worm's butt um, staring at me. So for the, the hour and a half that we have been doing this, I have been looking at Worm in all of his glory. <laughs> I've, I've been trying to focus on the schoolmaster. <laughs> The bleeding hearts and artists, let him get away with murder. Let me hammer him today. Woo, I love it. <laughs> mm, so good. So good. Okay, points well taken, Ken. We like doom and gloom, I guess. But but I, I do agree that with 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 
Joe and and that it's not in the same way that made again delivers you to a different place. But I think there is some wonderful uh, um, resolution in outside the wall. Paul, you brought up an interesting point that I think maybe plays in here as well. Uh, you know, by all accounts, if, if we sort of follow along and, and again, if by extension of some of the ex, the, uh, the external, the things that are external to the, the album itself, by all accounts, um, you know, the, the, the crowd gets behind this, this new and more aggressive pink, either through in the flesh or run like hell. And they're sort of embracing this, this angry energy and anything else. But then just minutes later at the end of at the end of the trial the 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 crowd if you will is chanting tear down the wall and so mm. in in that short space of time the the crowd has turned against the very thing that they have been following and of course mm. you know this is something that we have seen you know myriad times in our lives um you know that you come to that point where the popular person is too popular and you got to tear them down before you make the next guy. So I, mm-hmm. I just, you know, that yeah. that's a, a an aspect of this that I also find appealing. Okay. Outside the wall, though. Um, um, what do the lyrics? I mean, since I missed it and I don't get the uh, relief I need, what what do the lyrics do for you guys? I honestly don't even pay much attention to outside the wall. I think once you hear that wall come down, to me, the rest is just kind of like, no, okay. It's it's yeah because I'm, it's I'm definitely checked out. I, so I, what, I, I it's funny. I just saw a video of this. I, I want to say maybe even today. Of it, it looked like it was a Roger Waters uh, performance in 2010 or 2011, whenever he did it, and actually had uh, Nick Mason and David Gilmour on stage with him, um, singing along. And they had the whole band lined up, and they were kind of. They were almost singing it like a pub song. Interesting. And um, and and to me that you know when you think about the the way it is, it is. It's almost it's almost like a you know Irish pub song type of type of of melody yeah. around by it. Um, and it, it you know much more uplifting. But you know it's um you know all alone or in twos, the ones who really love you walk up and down outside the wall, some hand in hand, and some gathered in bands. The bleeding hearts and artists make their stand. I can't read that line without saying artists. Mm-hmm. And when they've given their all, some stagger and fall. After all, it's not easy banging your heart against some mad bugger's wall. And I mean, you could probably dissect that a, a whole bunch of, of 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 ways. But but for me, there's sort of a piece that comes through it's almost like roger making his peace with the guy he spit on right or 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 the fans that he's been so alienated by or the people that we become alienated with in in life because it's not easy banging your heart against some mad buggers wall right and we all have walls and we all have we're all mad buggers in a way and the people who love us eh, it's hard to love us and and you know, but at this point, Roger was on wife number two, so he may have had you know. And, and we've all those of us who have have been divorced, um, at least half of us here, uh, you know. And there there comes a when when you go through that, you know for certainty that you are right. And there comes a point where in the future, 
where you look back and you go, I wasn't quite as right as I thought I was at the time. It's not to say I'm wrong, but I wasn't quite as right as I thought. And and so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I can totally get behind this. It, I guess, you know, hearing you read this, Paul, these these lyrics, the, the phrase that popped into my head is, they sound kind of Seussian, honestly. Um, yes. <laughs> which is... Yes. Well, which is why in the, in the pub song version of it, it makes so much sense. Because if you think about the, the, the way it's presented with the school children singing it with a, basically the accordion, it is very childlike. It's, it's, it is very Seussian. And even the way, you know, in the album how he's sort of just reciting it. He's not singing it. Yeah. The kids are singing it and he's reciting it. Um, it is, it's, it's, it's very lullaby-ish and, and Susie and it's, it's, you're absolutely right. Uh, and, uh, so, I mean, I, I, I get this, I get the imagery, I get what he's trying to say. It just, I, I think maybe to Ken's point, you know, made again, emotionally heals you. This makes a point but doesn't emotionally heal you. You're, you're, you're still left with this gaping wound. Um, and, and maybe, you know, Ken, maybe that's, that's what you were trying to say, but that's how I think about it. And I'm covered in worm shit. <laughs> so, so perhaps here's, perhaps here's a part of this as well, right? So, you know, this, these are the two bookends similar to what we've talked about before bookends and, Dark side bookends in wish you were here bookends in animals. Yeah. So this is a bookend, and you know I brought it up last week. And we didn't really talk about it, but at the very end of this, there is a voice that says something at the very end before everything cuts off and the album ends. And so, and I still have never been able to decipher it, but thank you to the internet we can know that what is said is, isn't this where, and then that's when everything cuts off. Now, what I've never really heard, but what is supposedly at the very, very beginning of uh, the wall, but right before in the flesh and, you know, right, as you know, in the flesh starts off with the same music of outside the wall, right? There's that little interlude that starts it before in the flesh begins. Uh, supposedly right before there, it says, we came in. So if you put those two phrases together from the end of the record to the beginning, it says, isn't this where we came in? And it highlights the cyclical nature of psychologically building walls within our lives as almost to say, now that we've gone through all of this, now that I've gone through this whole thing, we've torn down the wall, I'm just starting all over again. And I love it from the perspective of where this started from as a rock star, right? Now that now that I've I've gone off the tour, I've written this thing, we've I've I've given my whole entire discourse on everything that got me here. Now I'm going to go start and do it all over again. Get back on the road, get back to alienating myself and everybody else. And this, well, you know, and 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 to keep up our Marillion parallel for the night, this is the story of the Leavers, right? Yeah. Yes. Oh, I love it. Not too dissimilar from our namesake either. That's true. Yes. Very circular story. Ka is a Paul, wheel. Paul, wasn't 
didn't um, you have made again as a part of your wedding? Was it in the uh, no. Was it video? No, it was beautiful. Oh, oh, beautiful, beautiful. Okay, okay. So, Paul, I think you have summed up our journey near perfectly. <laughs> so, healing yourself from the wall is not jumping into the final cut. It's, you know, you might want to get some Marillion in between. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll have to check the timeline of Progressive Rock to see which came out first, because... Uh, do I recall that both script and final cut came out in 83? Do I have that right? Sounds about right. It sounds right. Yeah. So we'll have to see when they, when they actually stack up, that will be interesting. You know, this has been, this has been fun. Did I anticipate um, spending, you know, three very lengthy episodes on the wall? Not entirely, but this has been exceptionally cool. Um, and there's, you know, it, it's funny for something that's been in our consciousness for so long that there's so much still to talk about and so much to discover. And it really does fill me with just a huge sense of admiration, again, for for the band as a whole and for, for Roger as the, you know, the, the thought behind this and, and the creative force. So... Um, absolutely fantastic. Any any thoughts that you guys have sort of summarizing your experience over the last several episodes as we've we've covered this material in depth? Just like all the other absolutely phenomenal ones that we've talked about, you know, it's 30 years later and still finding new wonderful things um, each time I give a deep listen to it. So it was wonderful. It, it's hard to sum up the wall um, like this because it's such an achievement. And all of us know what it takes just to write and record, you know, a couple songs, let alone an album, let alone a double concept album, let alone a double concept album with a huge tour like this and a movie. I mean, so I know we haven't gotten to the, a lot of that yet, but I mean, just as far as just an album, I mean, this is just a magnificent um, accomplishment, and yeah, I'm just having trouble putting it, you know, a little stamp on it because <laughs> it's just, it's just so amazing. But um, I think we did it justice. It, I think we needed to talk about it in three episodes. I got four words: best Sid reference ever. <laughs> <laughs> What else can you say to that? Gentlemen, uh, I cannot thank you enough for your extensive time uh, in, in covering this. This has been as spectacular as any of our palaver journeys have been. So um, thank you for coming along for the ride. I look forward to going where we go next because it, it, is, it is interesting. And I think there's a lot to talk about in these next few albums as we, as we look you know, to move past the wall and through some turbulent times and, and as we work to finish out the, the Pink Floyd catalog. So I look forward to that and happy to have you gentlemen along for the ride. We 
hope you've enjoyed this episode and the other episodes of Progressive Palaver uh, focused here on Pink Floyd's The Wall. We have definitely enjoyed sharing the conversation with you. And as always, we welcome and solicit your thoughts, comments, feedback, and questions. You can reach us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. We are at ProgPala on all of those or search for Progressive Palaver. You're welcome to email us. Our email address is ProgPala, that's P-R-O-G-P-A-L-A at gmail.com. Progressive Palaver is available for subscription and download on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, at some point Pandora, or presumably wherever you find your podcast. And we are, as always, hosted on SoundCloud. Don't forget to check out our video pre-shows on our YouTube channel. And until next time, thanks for listening. Perfect.